Hello. Welcome to Science Factual. Prepare yourself for factual download. Sequence commencing. Hell yeah, dude. Always stoked to hear that iconic piece of cinematic music from John Williams because it means that it is finally May. I couldn't think of a more appropriate kickoff for the 25th episode of Science Factual, the day before what really should be a national holiday, May the 4th, as in May the Force, be with you. And also with you. That's right, it's time for an entire month of Star Wars. That's five episodes covering the entire span of the movies, supporting films, books, games, conspiracy theories, Easter eggs, and more, not to mention interviews with some of the funniest comedians Portland has to offer. This episode, we kick things off in timeline order with a dive into the prequel trilogy as well as a dip into the Clone Wars animated series. We'll get more into that during the last episode slated for this month with Marla Massey. In the meantime, let's kick things off with a look at the opening crawl and a quick synopsis for each of the prequel films before getting into some facts behind them. I'm guessing right about now would be a great time for a... Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Let's get things started with Episode 1, The Phantom Menace. The opening crawl reads... Turmoil has engulfed the Galactic Republic. The taxation of trade routes to outlying star systems is in dispute. Hoping to resolve the matter with a blockade of deadly battleships, the Greedy Trade Federation has stopped all shipping to the small planet of Naboo. While the Congress of the Republic endlessly debates this alarming chain of events, the Supreme Chancellor has secretly dispatched two Jedi Knights, the Guardians of Peace and Justice in the galaxy, to settle the conflict. Set 32 years before the original trilogy, during the era of the Galactic Republic, the plot follows Jedi Master Qui-Gon Jinn and his apprentice Obi-Wan Kenobi as they try to protect Queen Padme Amidala of Naboo in hopes of securing a peaceful end to an interplanetary trade dispute. Joined by Anakin Skywalker, a young slave with unusually strong natural powers of the Force, they simultaneously contend with the mysterious return of the Sith. That brings us to Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. That opening crawl reads... There is unrest in the Galactic Senate. Several thousand solar systems have declared their intentions to leave the Republic. This separatist movement, under the leadership of the mysterious Count Dooku, has made it difficult for the limited number of Jedi Knights to maintain peace and order in the galaxy. Senator Amidala, the former Queen of Naboo, is returning to the Galactic Senate to vote on the critical issue of creating an army of the Republic to assist the overwhelmed Jedi. This story is set 10 years after The Phantom Menace, as thousands of planetary systems slowly secede from the Galactic Republic and join the newly formed Confederacy of Independent Systems, led by former Jedi Master Count Dooku. With the galaxy on the brink of civil war, Obi-Wan Kenobi investigates a mysterious assassination attempt on Senator Padme Abadala, which leads him to uncover a clone army in service of the Republic and the truth behind the Separatist movement. Meanwhile, his apprentice Anakin Skywalker is assigned to protect Amidala and develops a secret relationship with her. Soon, the trio witness the onset of a new threat to the galaxy, the Clone Wars. That brings us to the Clone Wars animated series. 
Star Wars The Clone Wars is set during the prequel trilogy era in the period of three years between Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. series focuses on the eponymous conflict between the Galactic Republic, which is supported by the Jedi Order, and the Confederacy of Independent Systems, a movement organized by the Sith Lord Count Dooku, to unite numerous planetary systems seeking independence from the Republic. Unbeknownst to the galaxy, Darth Sidious, Dooku's secret master, is the one pulling the strings of both sides, as part of his master plan to eliminate the Jedi and gain enough power to create a new governing state under his rule. This gets elaborated on during the next film in the prequel series, Revenge of the Sith, uh, because this series was initially conceived as an anthology, with episodes sharing few narrative connections, but later seasons feature story arcs that span several episodes. The protagonists are various characters from the live-action films, including Anakin Skywalker, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Padme Amidala, Yoda and Mace Windu, as well as new characters created for the series, such as Anakin's Padawan learner Ashoka Tano, and various clone troopers who are given distinct personalities like Captain Rex of the 501st Legion. The antagonists are typically members of the Separatist Alliance, though numerous episodes also focus on crime lords, bounty hunters, and force-sensitive characters, such as Asajj Ventress and others from Dothamir. That brings us to Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. That opening crawl reads, War. The Republic is crumbling under attacks by the ruthless Sith Lord, Count Dooku. There are heroes on both sides. Evil is everywhere. In a stunning move, the fiendish droid leader, General Grievous, has swept into the Republic capital and kidnapped Chancellor Palpatine, leader of the Galactic Senate. As the Separatist droid army attempts to flee the besieged capital with their valuable hostage, two Jedi Knights lead a desperate mission to rescue the captive Chancellor. Revenge of the Sith is set three years after the onset of the Clone Wars established in Attack of the Clones. The Jedi are spread across the galaxy leading a large-scale war against the Separatists. Following the death of Separatist leader Count Dooku, the Jedi Council dispatches Obi-Wan Kenobi on a mission to eliminate General Grievous, the head of the Separatist army, to put an end to the war. Meanwhile, after having visions of his wife Padme Amidala dying in childbirth, Anakin Skywalker is tasked by the Council to spy on Palpatine, the Supreme Chancellor of the Galactic Republic and, secretly, a Sith Lord. Palpatine manipulates Anakin into turning to the dark side of the Force and becomes his apprentice, Darth Vader, with wide-ranging consequences for the galaxy. A miniseries set 10 years after the events of the film titled Obi-Wan Kenobi is set to premiere May 27, 2022 on Disney Plus with McGregor and Christensen reprising their roles from the film. I am super stoked to see that. Now that you're up to speed on the three prequel movies as well as the Clone Wars animated series, which by the way is one of my favorite animated series hands down. The stories are great, the animation is rad, and I like the way it fills gaps such as what happened to Darth Maul after he was cut in half by Obi-Wan. It's robot legs. And it's awesome. Anywho, here are some interesting facts spanning the three prequel parts, starting off with The Phantom Menace, leading into Attack of the Clones, and wrapping up with Revenge of the Sith. But I want to start off with, what exactly are midichlorians? <laughs> Midi-chlorians were intelligent microscopic life forms that lived symbiotically inside the cells of all living things. When present in sufficient numbers, they could allow their hosts to detect the pervasive energy field known as the Force. 
Midichlorian counts were linked to potential in the force ranging from normal human levels of, say, 2500 per cell to the much higher levels of Jedi. The highest known midichlorian count, over 20,000 per cell, belonged to the Jedi Anakin Skywalker, who was believed to have been conceived by the midichlorians. That's why he was so easily influenced by either side of the Force. Alright, let's start off with some facts from The Phantom Menace. The Phantom Menace was the first movie George Lucas had written in 20 years, and just like all of his other scripts, he wrote them with a pencil and stack of paper. Old school. Nice. At the time of the film's release, the producers ran a disinformation campaign to suggest that Natalie Portman played both Padme and the Queen at all times. In fact, they are not always the same person. For many sections of the film, notably those where the Queen is wearing the black outfit with the huge feather headdress, she's actually a decoy played by Kira Knightley. The real Queen, Portman, is actually disguised as a handmaiden. Various conflicting public statements make it extremely difficult to figure out who is who, but whole websites are devoted to figuring out which actress is playing which handmaiden or the queen at any given point. That comes as no surprise. Jake Lloyd has said that he retired from acting because of the trauma he experienced after playing Anakin Skywalker. According to Lloyd, other children constantly teased him about the role. For example, they would make lightsaber sounds whenever he walked by. Lloyd also said that the situation was made worse because, in his opinion, the film did not meet the fans' expectations. Despite this, Lloyd has reprised the role of Anakin in several video games and has appeared at Star Wars conventions or events. Uh, Tupac Shakur, a Star Wars fan since childhood, expressed interest in reading for a role, even lobbying mutual friends of his and George Lucas's to get him in touch with each other to set up a meeting so he could read for the role of Mace Windu. However, his tragic murder in September of 1996 prevented him from doing so. Now, it has been speculated that he was up for the part of Mace Windu, but the character name was not publicly known before filming started, and it was not specifically written for an African American until Samuel L. Jackson was cast in the role. There is only one shot in the film which has no visual effects added. That would be the Dioxys cast pouring out of the vents in the meeting room at the beginning of the film. And as a quick Easter egg, the Starship Enterprise from Star Trek The Next Generation can be seen briefly among the traffic flying around Coruscant. You know, I always like to throw a little Star Trek trivia in there. Moving on to Attack of the Clones, Samuel L. Jackson has said that the words bad motherfucker are engraved on the hilt of his lightsaber because he is indeed a badass motherfucker. When Anakin is slaughtering the Tusken Raiders, Qui-Gon Jinn's voice can be heard in the background. That's no accident. According to Star Wars canon, Qui-Gon Jinn's Force Ghost tried to stop Anakin's rage, but ultimately failed. When Jango Fett gets into his ship after his fight with Obi-Wan, he bangs his head on the partially open door. This was intentional and is a reference to a famous goof from Star Wars Episode IV A New Hope where a stormtrooper accidentally bangs his head on an open blast door. During rehearsals and filming of Count Dooku's lightsaber battle scenes, a small model of Yoda was used as a reference point for Christopher Lee. The model, however, was slightly altered to have vampire fangs, to which Lee's amused response was, I will not comment on that. I didn't think you would do such a thing to me, George. The fangs were likely a joke at Lee's expense for his performance as Count Dracula in Dracula in 1958 and several other Hammer Studio horror films. Hayden Christensen became the only actor in any Star Wars movie who didn't get to choose the design of his lightsaber. It had been a tradition, but Christensen was stuck using a saber of the same design, but not exactly the same, that Obi-Wan gives Luke in Star Wars Episode IV A New Hope. Makes sense when considering nerds and continuity. According to animation director Rob Coleman, not a single clone trooper suit was ever built. Every clone trooper seen in the film is computer-generated, with motion capture performed by ILM employees, wearing only the helmet and sometimes the footwear of the suit. The rest is completely computer-generated. The character Ayala Sakura, seen in the fight scene that takes place on Geonosis, is played by Amy Allen and was not a character created by George Lucas. Ayala Sakura first appeared in the 19th issue of Dark Horse Comics' Star Wars Republic series, Part 1 of Star Wars Twilight. Lucas was so impressed with the character that he decided to have her in the film. We'll get more into the comics and other supporting materials with Jamie Carbone on the episode airing May 24th. That brings it on home to Revenge of the Sith. Uh, the volcanic world of Mustafar was designed to look like George Lucas's version of Hell. It's fucking metal, dude. Originally, a young Han Solo was going to make an appearance in the film, living among the Wookiees on Kashyyyk, 
would have been a great uh, tie-in for the solo film that came out, but can't really have foresight into everything. I mean, George Lucas already had the foresight to retain uh, international merchandising rights, so, you know, a win's a win. In the battle duel scene with Count Dooku, the imprisoned Palpatine originally had more dialogue, which he was to shout at Anakin. One of his lines pertained to Star Wars Episode II, Attack of the Clones, in which Palpatine exposed Dooku as paying the Tusken Raiders to kidnap, torture, and kill Shmi Skywalker. That would have definitely added in some more context to Shmi's death, or at least in terms of how much Palpatine was capable of manipulating events. The script and the action figures identify Anakin and Obi-Wan as using the call signs Red 5 and Red Leader, respectively, during the opening battle. Red 5 was also the call sign for Luke Skywalker during the Death Star battle in Star Wars Episode IV New Hope. Red Leader was the call sign of Wedge Antilles during the Death Star battle in Star Wars Episode VI Return of the Jedi. Wedge was played by Ewan McGregor's uncle, Dennis Lawson. Ewan McGregor apparently asked if he could also play one of the Emperor's red-robed Imperial Guards. However, it is not known whether he did or not. All shots of C-3PO had the entire green screen set reflecting in his shiny gold armor. So digital effects artists in post-production had to digitally repaint C-3PO's armor frame by frame by frame to remove any traces of the set. As someone who has done painstaking frame tracking in various editing softwares, I feel deeply for the editors involved in that project. After the opening battle, as the transport lands on the Senate building in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen, the Millennium Falcon, or a ship of similar model, a Corellian Engineering Corporation YT Series YT-1300 transport, can be seen landing. In the expanded universe Star Wars story outside of the movies, the YT-1300 has been confirmed as the Millennium Falcon, then named Stellar Envoy, long before Han Solo owned it. Now, a lot of people wonder what the various lightsaber colors mean, especially since the prequel and Clone Wars series introduce a number of new colors that we don't see in the original trilogy, like white, purple, yellow, and black. The following lightsabers make appearances throughout the Star Wars universe, starting off, of course, with the green-colored lightsaber, which denotes peace through force when necessary, uh, Jedi consulars who prefer negotiation and meditation to combat, uh, but have strong force abilities typically wield this color, such as Luke Skywalker, Yoda, and Qui-Gon Jinn. Next, by contrast, we have the red-colored lightsaber. That denotes evil and power, and uh, Sith and Dark Jedi typically wield these, and they are powered by synthetic crystals. Throughout the universe, we see characters like Darth Vader, Darth Sidious, Darth Maul, and Kylo Ren wield red sabers. Next, we have my favorite, the Blue Saber, which stands for Justice and Protection. Jedi Guardians who fight for the light side and are skilled lightsaber warriors typically wield this, uh, most notably Obi-Wan Kenobi and Anakin Skywalker before he turns to Darth Vader. Next, we have the Purple Lightsaber. That stands for Moral Ambiguity. Jedi who use both light and dark side techniques with an aggressive style, the purple color may be interpreted as a mixture of blue good and red evil. We have Mace Windu and Mara Jade Skywalker as characters who wield the purple saber. Next, we have a range of yellow and orange uh, tinted sabers. That ranges uh, between intrigue and pursuit, negotiation skills, strength on the light side, and physical strength. Mostly powerful Jedi, who are highly skilled fighters and part of the Sentinel class, use these lightsabers in particular. Characters who have wielded the orange and yellowish lightsabers are Yarael Poof and Plu Khan, as well as Yaddle, Kuran, and Lobaka. Next we have two of my other favorites. We have the Dark Saber, which is a black lightsaber that uh, denotes self-obsession. It's used by those who are controlled by self-obsession. It's called the Darksaber, and even though it's not necessarily a lightsaber in its association with the use by Jedis, uh, the Mandalorians actually wield Darksabers, and it is a symbol of power and hierarchy. They say whoever wields the Darksaber rules Mandalore. Last but not least, we have the White Lightsaber. That actually stands for Obedience and Service, and used by those with an obedience to a larger cause. Uh, we see Ahsoka Tano wielding this largely in Clone Wars and in the Mandalorian uh, or Book of Boba Fett ancillary series, but really to me what it means is that she 
is able to successfully walk the line between the dark and light side of the force. In the Star Wars universe, lightsaber colors are of course determined by the force of the Jedi using the lightsaber. More specifically, as noted on the official Star Wars site, lightsabers come from kyber crystals, typically found in the frozen caves in the world of Ilum, which acquire color once attuned to a specific Jedi. There are exceptions, however. At some points, lightsaber crystals were replaced by Kunda stones. More significantly, Sith usually use red-hued synthetic crystals that draw more on the power of the Sith wielding the lightsaber than the general ambient force energy. Known modifications include Darth Maul's epic dual saber and the guard featured on Kylo Ren's lightsaber as well. Now it's unclear exactly how dark sabers work because if the kyber crystal is supposed to attune to the person wielding it, how does it have the uniform uh, dark energy? Not entirely sure, but they are cool nonetheless. Check out the Clone Wars series for more on that. Up next, we have an interview with AJ Valentine. We got to chopping it up over the prequel films before the weekly comedy open mic at Kelly's Olympian, hosted by Jono, one of my favorite comics, hosting one of my favorite mics. So check it out. Without my questions? Uh, what about Google? <laughs> I know your laugh is intense. But <laughs> it you... has levels. Yes, it does. It I, does. Sabrina and I are trying to do a bit where we go up on stage. It's Sabrina Contreras and Andrew John where she does her bit and I'm her manager slash, slash hype man. And she doesn't acknowledge me at all. But if somebody's like, who's that? She's like, oh, he's just my manager. But she just does her bit and I'm just like, and I have sunglasses on and stuff. This sounds like a great bit. It's gonna be good. Yeah, it, so it sounds great. Well, the other, the voice other than mine, uh, folks, that's Andrew John, aka Andrew Valentine, aka the bad boy of comedy <laughs> in, in Portland, Oregon. Um, we're sat, we're sat in my car downtown Portland on the corner of what used to be Stark, now Harvey Milk, and Southwest Fourth Avenue. Um, we were gonna go to the Kelly's Olympia mic, but Club Rouge is looking pretty nice right around now. What the, f the, oh, the, 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 the gentleman's club. There's a gentleman's oh, club. Oh, that's yeah. what the spinning shit the, is. The spinning shit, yeah, because okay. you know it's alluding to all the spinning on the pole that goes on in there. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. All right. Uh, and across the street from, or is it across the street? Is this where Golden Dragons at? There's another one that's. Uh, that looks like a homeless shelter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the St. James Studios sounds like a great spot to overdose on heroin. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, well, hi, AJ. Thanks for joining me. No problem, man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, before we get started, what's your in what's your Instagram? Oh, God. Oh, I think it's like at AJ Valentine underscore underscore. Two underscores there at the end. I Could think so. Because the underscore I put at the end is kind of long, so I'm assuming there's two of them. Hmm. Here, let's corroborate this. Yeah, it's true. So it's AJ Valentine, all one word underscore underscore yes sir and that's because the ones without the underscore were taken or is that like a was that a move is that a um, maneuver? is that what the kids are doing nowadays well usually it's aj underscore valentine underscore but that might have been taken at the time from like me six years ago okay and then when i tried to delete my instagram something went wrong i don't know because i like I, I have a problem with technology and all that Problems with technology. All right. Well, I try shit, give up, get frustrated, give up, and what? then six years later, I have a problem. So I'm like, fuck it, I'll just use two underscores. Mm. And now here I am. Here you are. Uh, so let me ask you this: How did you first get started in stand-up comedy? Well, it was at Kelly's Olympian. This was okay. uh, pre-pandemic. Uh, I'm like, I was listening to a bunch of podcasts. Uh, it was. I, I was working at Redtail, just listening to podcasts while I worked, and I was like, I might want to give that a shot, so I went down to Kelly's. This was pre-pandemic. Uh, before the pandemic, I did like 12 or 20 
uh, open mics, uh, and I was high the whole time. Okay. This is like my pre-smoking, this was my smoking weed days. Okay. Um, but yeah, so the first time I did it, I went to Kelly's on a Sunday. Uh, I think it was like January or something. But, uh, yeah, I, uh, hit my dab pen and I said that Bill Belichick is really fat. And nobody in the in the crowd laughed, but everybody he is fat. in the bar uh, in the room across started cracking up because I said it kind of loudly because mm. I didn't know where to place the microphone. So, so you just emphatically like semi yelled that Bill Belichick is overweight. Yes, yes, and I kind of ranted after that. Surpri- um, surprising, that is a bit of your style. Yes. Although, yeah. Yes. You also write jokes. I do. I kind of. I like to do a mix of them. Feel feel in the room. It's, feel, it's yeah. It's a, yeah. It's a room to room kind uh, of situation. Absolutely. Um. But then like that was my first one ever, so I didn't cool. know what I was doing, and I was sure. high the whole, the whole time. But, but you've, you've since stopped smoking, and that's do you think um, that's helped you improve your? After the pandemic, I don't smoke weed when I'm on stage. Oh, okay. That's a good. Yeah. That's a good yeah. Call. While while performing. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I also rarely I smoke weed, weed like twice a year now. I kind of just like stopped doing that. Mm. I just kind of got tired of getting paranoid and all that. So yeah. I like being sober. Sure, it's fun. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so what was your first exposure to sci-fi? Star Wars. Okay. Nice. Star Wars. Yeah, same actually. Like yeah. gr- growing up, I you know one of the first VHSs that I remember that wasn't Disney was Star Wars, which ironically is now owned by Disney. Um, Disney's freaking awesome. Disney's all right. Disney's all right, dude. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're, they're doing their thing. They, yep, they are doing their thing. That's true. Yeah. Uh, so your first exposure, what, like Star Wars, when you, when did you first see it? Like, because I, I don't know, I was like what seven or eight. I, re, I, re, I, I was born in '99. Okay. Um, and I have vague memories of watching the trailer for Star Wars Episode Three. Uh, sure, which was 2005. Yes. Uh, and I kind of just, like, watched them all, watched one through six around, like, the same time. Uh, but what I'm very, very familiar with is the Lego Star Wars video game. Like, I could, like, I, pl- I probably beat that game about... You know, I've 18. never played a single Lego... I know they have Lego Batman. I played that one also. And, like, Lego Justice League. I never... I didn't get to that one. Or maybe, maybe I'm did, making uh, that up. That would be a good one, though. Yeah, I did, uh... Batman and Star Wars, and they were some fun. They were very fun. So, out of the Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, and Revenge of the Sith, which which do you like the most? Uh, by far, it's Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, uh, I, that's actually not only is it my favorite Star Wars movie, but it's one of my favorite movies of all time because it, it it really get, gets you a gut punch when the order uh, the order sixty six comes out. Yeah, it's it's very very sad every time I watch it. Yeah, it's tough to watch a bunch of like actually good people just get gunned down by. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's 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 a rough scene for sure. And plus, it's a prequel, so you know that it's not really going to be a happy ending. Yeah, yeah, so, that's true. Like, it's, a, you, it's a really good movie for for with that fact alone. Like no, like the fact that we know what basically yeah. happened. Like yeah. to, to still come out with a good movie with yeah. developed characters and like actually bridge the gap felt the same way about Rogue One. Yeah, uh, I thought they did a really good job. Yeah, but okay. And, and did you like the Clone Wars animated series? I enjoyed it. I, I watched it as a kid, season for season, for two seasons when it came out. I enjoyed it thoroughly. I thought it was freaking awesome, but then I just got distracted by other shows. Sure, yeah. I, and I mean, like, unless you're binging it, it's not like yeah. something that I would be terribly dedicated to. But I yeah. do like the, you know, the, the visuals. I like the continuation story for Darth Maul. Yeah. Uh, badass that he gets fucking robot legs. It's super dope. Uh, and uh, Ventress is another favorite character. Ventress of mine. is cool. They delve more into Count Dooku and like you know how he you know kind of got started uh, with the dark side and this and that. And I was I was reading about Sifo Dyas, uh, which was the Jedi that that they made the False Order under to like get the Clone War or the Clone Army developed. So like oh. the um, the Kamoans, uh 
like oh Camino. Uh, the, yeah, the uh, Kaminoans. I always fuck that up. Yeah. The Kaminoans. They always they they were like yeah this this guy came and and ordered it, but it was like I was reading a backstory about him and the generation of the actual clone army, and it is fucking like deep seated. It, it's there's even stuff that the Clone Wars animated series does not cover and that you have to like read super nerd threads on the internet about in order to like make the connections but i agree out of the three i i I like revenge of the sith the most simply because it's it is that it was the bridge gap between like and they did a very good job they did a great yeah they did a great job yeah it Um, could have been messed up easily oh oh yeah they could have definitely because they were messing it. it up before that right like everyone was like this this better be good yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Exactly. And yeah. and a lot of people were not stoked on the Phantom Menace or Attack of the Clones. <laughs> I, I tried. Per- I personally liked Phantom the Phantom Menace when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Because it came out, I think, in 1999, and I was nine. Okay. So I was like, it'd be dope to be Anakin because yeah. ostensibly he is like anywhere between eight, nine, ten years old, even though he's a little small. But like, he is that age because in Attack of the Clones, he's like 18, 19. Yeah, that that happens 10 years later. You know, he's under Obi-Wan's tutelage or what have you. But yeah, it's a, yeah, I I think it's a great, I think it's a great prequel series. I mean, because the first one was a kid's movie. Because it it was, it was, it did have like dark undertones, if you will. But like, yeah, we're going to get to this in a minute, but I, I, sent you a question about Darth Jar Jar. Are you? I did my research. Yeah. And I have my opinion we're, on that. We're going to get to that. Okay. For sure. Okay. But it, I was reading an article, like, if you go back and watch them again with that lens and you look at, at Jar Jar's interactions with various figures throughout the three movies and, like, the influence that he gains throughout it and, and, and position and decisions that he makes for the Galactic Senate is fucking crazy. I know I didn't say bring your tinfoil hat. I think you have one on you anyway, typically. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a fucking crazy theory. Getting into characters, who's your favorite character? And it doesn't have to... It, it, you, it, you can do it on a per-movie basis or just across the three. I mean, like, for instance, my personal favorite character in Phantom Menace is Qui-Gon Jinn. But yeah. I also fucking love Darth Maul. Like Darth Maul is bad to the ass. Yeah. And but it, but neither of them go throughout the rest of the series, really. I thought that uh, I'm I've always been a Liam Neeson fan. Mm. And Qui Gon Jinn, I thought he was like average to above average as a kid. I was like, yes, that's Qui Gon Jinn. But then I'm like, oh wait, that's Liam Neeson. I guess he's awesome now. Right. Um. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Once you once you watch it again, yeah. uh, you know, being older, you're like. Oh, Qui-Gon Jinn's kind of a fucking badass, yeah. and it's Liam Neeson. But uh, I'd say episode three, uh, Anakin, was pretty cool. Yeah. Because uh, that... Still, still kind of a whiny bitch sometimes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. But, but he is ruthless. He's so... Like... I mean, that, that last fight scene... Yeah, it's pretty fucking badass. That last fight scene, when they're like... Because, like, like, episode, like, four... Like like the really when the with the old ones like yeah. their fight scenes like they're just like yeah not putting any effort into their lightsaber right. skills. There's a lot more emphasis There's because a, it was new. It was new at the time, so yeah. it's just like pew yeah pew yeah yeah wow exactly. You know, like making sure the sound effects people were like, whoa shit, yeah. what the fuck is that? And now we're just like, if you're not fucking going full tilt, balls to the walls lightsaber fighting right now I'm yeah, not into it exactly your shit is weak if you're not fucking doing triple flips and like yeah you know all sorts of weird guards and yeah no the fight between Obi-Wan and Anakin in Revenge of the Sith is by far the best fight sequence aside from Obi-Wan and Darth Maul no I, I put it above Obi-Wan and oh Darth no Maul. well I'm saying aside from like I mean like the, the any anything else other than that would be like second rate is Obi Wan versus Darth Maul. Oh yeah, yeah. Because like Anakin versus Dooku, that was kind of stupid. Was lame as fuck. Yeah. Uh, Obi Wan versus Grievous, 
that was sick. Was dope. Yeah, episode three did their stuff. Like, uh, yeah, like uh, even uh, Anakin and Obi Wan versus the bodyguards. Mm. Um, all of episode seven through nine was awesome. Yeah. Well, right. Well, for that, for the same reasons of the fight sequence. Yeah, like they had the CGI stuff. They had everything. Like you don't have any excuses. <laughs> you don't have any excuses to fuck up. Uh, and they didn't. A lot of people were kind of pessimistic toward those movies. But I, 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 my favorite lightsaber of seven through nine is Kylo Ren's. Obviously, I mean, like yeah. the the the, rig, the rigid nature of the yeah, like how it's like spitting oh, yeah. out flames instead oh, yeah. of this like solid lightsaber is dope as fuck. And he's like dragging it across the ground. Yeah, yeah. But we're here to talk about one through three. Oh, but it's Star Wars. That's true. That's true. Well, so, uh, who was your least favorite character, and why is it Jar Jar Binks? <laughs> okay, well, first of all, when I first watched that movie, I was like four or six or whatever, so I thought he was hilarious. Mm. I get it. Now they seem super racist. He might be so, a little racist. So, do, so does the Trade Federation, like they're Chinese. Oh my <laughs> god. Like, like, dude, the whole time I was like, this is... <laughs> Hella racist. <laughs> I know. It's uh, not, it did not hold up well. I know. It didn't age well. How about yeah. that? No, that's yeah, that's what. Yeah, it, yeah, it started it off kind of funny, but it it, it ended up like rotten cheese. <laughs> True, but I, I I would say that Jar Jar Binks is fairly universally hated. Uh, yeah, I think he, they were just trying to make like a funny sidekick, and they did a really bad job at it. Well. Yes, that is how it ended up, but I mean, we might as well dive headfirst into Darth Jar Jar. At this I point. really want yeah, to. Yeah, no, dude. we will. Okay, let's do it. So basically, you know, like I think that that's all an act. I, you know, even George Lucas said that he intended for Jar Jar Binks to be force sensitive at the very least, and circumstantial evidence points toward that. Not only in his physical attributes. Like, he can do fucking crazy force jumps and all sorts of, like, leaps, which is not necessarily intrinsic to the physicality of Gungans, his race, because we'd see other fucking Gungans on the battlefield jumping around and doing random shit and, like, fucking backflips and crazy force jumps and stuff. Also, we see him use, presumably, if you if you ascribe to this theory, the force in influencing people like Jedi mind tricks or Sith mind tricks. That's a good point. Because he's like, yeah, you know, when he he's he he's always prodding people along with with his hand gestures. Uh, even when he proclaims to give Chancellor Palpatine supreme powers in the Senate, which how he got to that position even is ridiculous. That two Jedi would take a bumbling fool with them through the core of a planet is ridiculous. But he had to have had some sort of influence on situations that was not foreseen. I think it's completely plausible. Now, a lot of, some theories delve into that, you know, talking about 7 through 9, that he's Snoke, you know, that, that he's, he uh, infused his life force into the dying body of the Emperor after 6, and that's why we see the Emperor's body, like, body come back on all these, like, crazy fluids and shit. And on on that like extendo arm, basically in nine at the end of nine, uh, there there are a whole bunch of like really ridiculous. Those are a lot of good points and a lot of it's a lot very of very interesting theories, and it really makes me want to rewatch episodes one, two, and three with that lens. With that yeah. lens, dude. So I'll I'll send you the link, but I quote a Reddit users like I, yeah, deep, yeah, deep yeah. dive into the theory uh, um, I don't know I can't remember what his username was apparently but um I, I read all that stuff like he was using some, like mar mar some martial art form yeah the Shao the, and the Jedis were based loosely on Shaolin monks if you will and that he was using the, the drunken fist or you know uh, however yeah I take episodes one through nine as tablets Okay. I think that if they didn't get to it, like in like seven through nine, like one through six, like afterwards, like that stretch, people on Reddit or well, whatever, they developed all these theories. But, they, but I, seven I, through nine uh -huh. confirmed everything. If they, I don't think that if they mentioned it, 
There's a re- I think there's a reason why they didn't mention it, why and, is and that? it's be, it, the, and it's the same reason that they didn't reveal that Jar Jar Binks was like an actual Sith Lord in Revenge of the Sith, because people would be like, "What the fuck? That guy who sucks, who we've been led to believe like is some bumbling idiot." But it basically it's it's like uh, the usual suspects, like like you're gonna Kaiser Soze, Jar Jar Binks. You know what I mean? Like I think it would have been sick. So, but, yeah, I, I think it'd been a great reveal. Yeah. Because then if you give him, like, this sinister... Like, he changed his voice a bit. You give him a sinister look, like, put a cloaked hood over him. Because yeah. I've seen artist renderings of him looking yeah. like a Sith, and I'm like, yo. And then you look at all the support... Because it's all circumstantial evidence. But at the same time, like, 7 through 9 is the same tablet as 1 through 6. No, I know, but they what I'm saying is that they abandoned that thought arc because people hated Jar Jar Binks. If you it, but if they hate him, why don't they just make him a Sith? I agree. I think they should have ran with it. I would have much rather have liked to have seen that because then it'd be nostalgic for the people who go back. They'd have a lot more viewership and streaming on the first three because people would be like, "Wait, what the fuck?" and then they'd have to go back and watch it again. Yeah, like, I, I, I think that it would have been... I think Phantom Menace really ruined Jar Jar Binks for a lot of people. Absolutely. Well, they ruined it with his... with like, I mean, first impressions are everything. By the yeah. second and third movies, they're like, what the fuck is Jar Jar Binks doing in the Senate? This is ridiculous. Yeah. Getting back to the questions. Have you watched the movies in the specific order that has has been laid out? Like, for instance, one... Two, the Clone Wars animated series. Three, Rogue One. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Like, I uh, I haven't done a sit down and watch them, but I, I've seen all the shit. Yeah, it's like almost twenty four hours. I feel like of yeah, it's not. It's, it's over two hours per, and there's it's nine. Tough. It's tough. So it's yeah, it's got to be close to twenty four hours. Yeah, straight of viewing. I can I can barely do a Zepathon, bro. A what-a-thon? Just sit down and listen to every Led Zeppelin album. Oh, Zeppelin. It's like, it's, it's eight, eight, it's eight hours. Yeah. Well. And you can't do it. Usually, you, you let the lead out during your morning commute. (laughs) (laughs) Well. Shout out Led Zeppelin, man. Shout out Led Zeppelin. Um, I actually have the Zoso symbols as a tattoo across the upper part of my back here. That's fucking sick. Yeah, dude. Fucking metal, bro. Hell yeah. Saw, dude. (laughs) Saw? Saw, dude. Saw, dude. Doggy. Have you read any of the books or comic I haven't. books? I yeah. haven't. I, I haven't either, really. I, I read a book in high school that was, um, it had something to do with the, like, Knights of the Old Republic. That's another great video game. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I have A New Hope in paperback form in my go bag. So, like, if I ever have to survive in the wilderness post-apocalyptic mm-hmm. style... You know, I'll at least have some good science fiction. Okay. I forget who wrote it, though. I don't, I don't, a, I don't and know And again, and again, yeah. like, the movies I consider tablets. So, like, the books, like, people make books and comic books and stuff, and they're like, oh, be- this happened, therefore this happened. And I'm like... Well, you can expand on canon. Yeah, but at the same time, it's like a, uh, it's like a tier two. Mm. Tier two religion. <laughs> Or not religion, to tier to extent. Like, um, I have all this. Uh, I, I think that uh, my vote for politics should count less than other people's because I know slightly less, I'm, and I'm slightly less informed about politics. <laughs> That's actually kind of funny. So, like, doing your, doing your vote value based yeah. on, like, the, the meritocracy of your understanding of the system. Exactly. Exactly, and I consider, <laughs> and if and if you're gonna be like, well, it's in the comic books, Jar Jar, they said Jar Jar was evil. I that's that's like. Well, I don't know. If they did that in comic books, but I understand what you mean. Let's say that they did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, you would you, like. It's like they, okay. Okay, well, well, did they mention it in the movie? And they're right. like, no. And I'm like, all right, fuck off. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, I can understand that. It was originally a movie-formatted medium. You know, like, I, I get that, for yeah. sure. Um, yeah, I, I try, it, you know, I try to look at it through the lens of its original 
intended story arc. Absolutely. And I think that's kind of what Absolutely. you're alluding to. For sure. Well, AJ, where can we hear you perform next? Or are you going by Andrew John? No, no. Andrew John's just a alter ego where I go up and quote-unquote act like a douchebag. <laughs> act, yes. <laughs> yeah, those are, those. I don't, I don't, folks, you can't see those quotation marks, but they are heavy. <laughs> no, but I don't, I mean... I don't really focus on getting booked. I'm at the I'm I'm like very very early in my uh, quote unquote career. Yeah. <laughs> Where I'm just trying to go up and have fun, and I I, I mean I hit a mic when I can hit a mic, so I well, end you, up. Well, you do a few a week. I mean, you're definitely do, put, you're putting in the work for sure. I I've been I do like eight to nine a week. Like I. That's yeah. excessive. It's not because it's fun. Mm, okay. Yeah. yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah, so long as you're having fun. Absolutely. That's true. Yeah. Well, hey, thanks, AJ. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Let's, yes, let's sir. Let's go do this mic at Kelly's. Absolutely. Yes, and I'm going to go up. <laughs> and I'm going to have fun. Let's. All right. Let's go have some fun. <laughs> all right. All right. Glad to get a chance to sit down with AJ. I've known him for mics for months, and he's a good kid. I'm looking forward to seeing what he does with comedy now that he's actually writing his jokes down. And he killed it at Underbar the other night. <sighs> well, we all know what that sound means. It's time for your water cooler fact. Forewarning, you're going to want to put on that tinfoil hat right about now. This week's water cooler fact is more like a conspiracy corner deep dive, but before I even get into it, I have to give full credit for what you're about to hear to Reddit user Lumpawaru for laying out this well-argued fan theory, with a bit of support from none other than George Lucas himself. I present to you, Darth Jar Jar. The thread reads, Here I will seek to establish that Jar Jar Binks, far from being simply the bumbling idiot he portrays himself as, is in fact a highly skilled force user in terms of martial ability and mind control. Furthermore, I assert that he was not, as many people assume, just an unwitting political tool manipulated by Palpatine. Rather that he and Palpatine were likely in collaboration from the very beginning, and it's entirely possible that Palpatine was in fact a subordinate underling to Binks throughout the trilogy. And finally, given the above, I will conclude with an argument as to why I believe it is not only possible, but plausible that Jar Jar will make a profound impact on the upcoming movies and what his role may be. Although, that part I'm a little bit skeptical of. Alright. So first, let's establish Jar Jar as a skilled warrior. While this does not in itself necessitate a connection with the physical force, it's highly suggestive in the Star Wars universe. Very rarely do we see normal characters exhibiting extraordinary stunt work or physical feats unless they are Jedi, Sith, or at least force sensitives. Take under consideration when Jar Jar nonchalantly executes a standing 20-foot twisting somersault jumping into the waters of Naboo. Now, taken out of context, if you were watching a Star Wars movie and saw a character casually execute this maneuver, you'd probably assume that it was a Jedi. In the context of Jar Jar, though, we don't, because elsewhere he so thoroughly convinces us that he's nothing more than a harmless dunce with his inane dialogue and cowardly lion act. He also manages to convince us that he's a bumbling oaf in the midst of pitched battle, even though he's always incredibly amazingly successful whether single-handedly taking down a battle droid tank or unleashing a barrage of Boombas on their front lines or precisely targeting multiple enemies with a blaster tangled around his ankle, we simply roll our eyes and attribute it to dumb luck. But is it? This is one of the main reasons we as an audience hate Jar Jar so thoroughly. He breaks the fourth wall, he shatters our suspension of disbelief because we know that no one is really that lucky. We dismiss it as a lame, cliched trope, the silly, pathetic oaf who always seems to inadvertently save the day. A real Mr. Bean type. I posit that instead, this is a deliberate facade on the part of Jar Jar as a character and on the part of the writers and animators. 
As we know, the Jedi themselves are inspired by Shaolin monks, and there's a particular Kung Fu discipline that Jar Jar's physicality is purposefully modeled upon, which allows him to appear goofy and uncoordinated even as he lays waste to his enemies, namely Ji Quan, or Drunken Fist Wushu. Okay, that's all well and good, but even if Jar Jar is a secret Drunken Fist boxing master, that doesn't make him a Force user, right? Well, it should at least make us suspicious of his character, period. It establishes that his over-the-top childish antics are a veneer masking a more complex character than we're led to believe. But even if you choose to ignore Jar Jar's seemingly magical prescience in battle, I believe that there is a particular scene in which we do see him clearly make use of the physical force. In The Phantom Menace, when Jar Jar and the Jedi ambush the droids and rescue the Queen and her entourage, Jar Jar accidentally botches his leap from the balcony. A few frames later, he's seen dropping from the opposite side of that balcony, which would seem to be quite the impossible feat without a force-assisted jump and or force sprint of some kind. I think what has happened here, even though we don't see it directly, is that Jar Jar has purposefully split the attention of the enemies by grabbing onto the balcony as he falls and then, using the force, propelled himself with a pull-up flip to land in an unexpected place. In fact, this is a maneuver that we've seen before from a Jedi. Twice if you want to count Obi-Wan doing it in the Duel of Fates to take Maul by surprise. In addition to this kind of highly suspicious physical luck, I also believe that we're given enough clues to justifiably suspect that Jar Jar is also a master of Jedi mind control. We hate the way Jar Jar influences major plot points for the same reason we hate his physicality. It messes with our sense of realism. Two experienced Jedi on a serious mission would never actually bring someone that stupid along with them. No character that idiotic would ever really be made a general, and they certainly wouldn't be made a senator. How could anyone like Jar Jar really convince the entire galaxy to abandon democracy? I mean, that's ridiculous. These things are just the political version of his physical luck. Inadvertent, seemingly comical bumbling that just so happens to result in astoundingly positive results. But what if it isn't inadvertent? And what if Jar Jar's meteoric rise and inexplicable influence isn't the result of dumb happenstance, but the result of extensive and careful use of forced mind powers? Jedi, and presumably Sith, exhibit telltale signs when using the mind trick to implant suggestions or influence behavior. For one, they always gesticulate and not so subtly wave their hands at the target. We can look at some pivotal Jar Jar moments during his political career for evidence. For instance, when Jar Jar is hand-waving his way towards a promotion to Bombay General, or when Jar Jar is hand-waving his way towards a promotion to the Senate, or when Jar Jar is using force persuasion as he hand-waves the entire Galactic Senate and ushers in the death of democracy with making Palpatine Supreme Chancellor. Actually, if you watch the prequels with the idea that Jar Jar might be a manipulative dark character, you begin to notice just how insidious and subtle his manipulation is and how effective in almost every sequence he's involved in, and also just how hyper-aware of the overarching plot he really is. Here are some examples. Jar Jar tricking the Jedi into traveling through the planet core so that they actually need him, Jar Jar carefully causing a scene so that they run into Anakin, as well as him constantly mocking Qui-Gon Jinn behind his back while Anakin is watching so that Anakin learns disrespect for Jedi authority early on, uh, Jar Jar telling an eight-year-old child that the queen is pretty hot, and fanning the flames of the child's infatuation that is exploited later on. Now, if you lend even the slightest credence to any of the above points, and acknowledge the possibility that Jar Jar might not be an idiot, you're almost forced to conclude that Jar Jar Binks and Palpatine were co-conspirators. If Jar Jar is putting forth an elaborate act to deceive people, it means he's not a fool, and if he's not a fool, it means his actions in Episode 2 that facilitate Palpatine's plans are not those of an unwitting tool, they're those of a partner. Remember, Palpatine and Jar Jar are from the same planet, which in the scale of Star Wars universe is like growing up as next-door neighbors. It's entirely possible that they knew each other for years prior to the events of The Phantom Menace. Perhaps they trained together, or one trained the other, like the Sith do. And Naboo is a really strange planet, actually. Remember those odd ancient statues with the third eye? I mean, Naboo is the kind of place an outcast Gungan might find a Sith holocron or two. But that's just speculation. Let's stick to what we actually know. 
What we do know is that even after Palpatine is elected as Chancellor, years after Jar Jar has been, quote, tricked into helping elect him, Palpatine still hangs out with Jar Jar in Revenge of the Sith. Why? Wouldn't he just be a constant source of public embarrassment at that point? I mean, this is the same character who can't walk five yards without stepping into Pudu or squealing like a rabid donkey, right? What use does he have now? Why is he still at the right hand of the most powerful person in the galaxy? Could it be that in fact Jar Jar is the most powerful person in the galaxy? Fine, maybe. Hilarious conspiracy theory, but why would George Lucas bother to create this devious Gungan character with an elaborate conspiratorial past, but then never actually reveal his true nature? Here's George Lucas talking about Yoda. Yoda really comes from a tradition in mythological storytelling. Fairy tales of the hero finding the little creature on the side of the road that seems very insignificant and not very important, but who turns out to be the master wizard or the master thing. As we all know, one of Lucas's big deals with the prequels was that they were intended to rhyme and mirror the original trilogy in terms of general narrative themes. So there should have been a seemingly innocent creature found on the side of the road that later reveals itself as a major player. We do have a creature that seems to fit this description precisely, Jar Jar. But of course, he never developed into a master of anything, other than disappointment. Here's what I think happened. I think that Jar Jar was initially intended to be the prequel and dark side equivalent of Yoda, just as Yoda has his big reveal that his tattering, geriatric, goofball persona is just a mask. Jar Jar was intended to have a big reveal in episode 2 or 3 where we learn that he's not really a naive dope but rather a master puppeteer Sith in league with or perhaps in charge of Palpatine. However, George Lucas chickened out. The fan reaction to Jar Jar was so vitriolic that this aspect of the trilogy was abandoned. It was just too risky. If Jar Jar is truly that off-putting, it's potentially ruinous to the Star Wars legacy to imply that he's the ultimate bad guy of the entire saga. So pretend he was just a failed attempt at comic relief instead, I guess that's what they chose to go with. This is why Dooku seems like such a flat, shoehorned-in character with no backstory. He was hastily written in to cover the plot holes left when villain Jar Jar was redacted. Yoda was meant to duel with his literal dark side nemesis, a mythological equivalent at the end of Attack of the Clones, not boring old Count Dooku, but Sith Master Jar Jar. Jar Jar Binks has undoubtedly become the face of everything that is wrong with the prequels. He was too silly, too unbelievable, seemingly pointless. If you're able to somehow change the nature of Jar Jar from embarrassing idiot to jaw-dropping villain, suddenly the entire prequel trilogy must, have seen, must be seen in a new light, because it becomes the setup for the most astounding reveal in film history. Jar Jar Binks is the Supreme Leader Snoke? <laughs> I don't personally ascribe to that line of thinking because the evidence is somewhat less than circumstantial, so I'll spare you the details. However, if you're a glutton for pain, there are plenty of Reddit threads for you to peruse. At any rate, I think Lumpa Ruru makes a number of excellent points and lays out the theory in a meaningful way with supporting evidence to back up their claim. Well done, nerd. Well, it's been fun revisiting my childhood. I was the kid dressed as Darth Maul for the opening weekend of Phantom Menace as a chubby nine-year-old who was recently fed the original trilogy intravenously for months and months on end. I'll try and find a Polaroid and post it to my Instagram. That's at Reese underscore comedy dot exe. Visit my feed and you might just inadvertently download a fun little virus. Major thanks to this week's sources. I'm talking about kickassfacts.com, fandom.com imdb.com, starwars.com, wikipedia of course, reddit, and just the countless hours I've spent over the past nearly three decades enjoying the works of George Lucas and the talented folks over at Lucasfilm. I'm super looking forward to getting into the trilogy that started it all as well as Rogue One with the very awesome Danielle Porter. We've talked about everything from Futurama with Julia Corral to Doctor Who before the weekly Mike She co-hosts with Maricha Halprich over at Growler's Taproom on 82nd every Wednesday. We're going to meet up and nerd out about the iconic trilogy as well as the supporting piece Rogue One. So stay tuned to Shady Pines Radio. Each and every Tuesday from 8 to 9 a.m., 
for new and exciting episodes of Science Factual. Now again, this entire month will be Star Wars related, so check back in throughout the rest of the month for dives into the rest of the nine-part series, as well as a dive into the video games, books, and the Mandalorian series. Whether you walk the light or dark side of the Force, or even if you're more of an Ahsoka Tano type and walk the balance, this month is going to be a Sith load of Star Wars facts and great interviews. Listen to them all on the Shady Pines Radio mobile app or online at ShadyPinesRadio.com for free any time of day for amazing content broadcast from Portland, Oregon to the rest of the multiverse. May the Force be with you during the month of May and always.